morning. It is so good to worship with you this morning. If you're joining with us for the first time today, um, welcome. We are right in the middle of this summer series on the Lord's Prayer. And um, as I said a few weeks ago, the entire purpose of this series is really for us to intentionally think about our prayer life together, right? You think about it, even the closest disciples of Jesus needed training in how to pray, And so when you hear Lord's Prayer, don't think just about that prayer that we would memorize from a young age or that prayer that we would recite over and over again in worship, but Jesus gave us this this guideline, the Lord's Prayer, so that we might better understand our relationship with the Father. And uh, so today, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. We're going to read uh, chapter 6 together. And uh, as we do that, we have come really to one of the most notable themes in all of God's word. In fact, we could probably take an entire year on this theme as Jesus talks about praying for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. So let's do this, if you would, with me. We're going to look at chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 9 through 13 together. But as we do that, I want us to just focus in on verse 10, okay? So let's, uh, let's pray through this scripture together. Look at this in verse nine. Pray then, Jesus says, like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Want to keep going? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I'm amazed both sites this morning. You can't say our Father in church without God's people just joining in prayer. Think with me about this. When is the first time that you remember praying the Lord's Prayer? First time. Dig deep with me. When was the first time, your first memory of maybe memorizing those words with mom or dad, saying those words in worship? When I was growing up, um, I recall memorizing those words from a very early age, and I had no idea what they meant, right? We do this to our kids. We're like, learn it now. We'll explain it later. But when we say, thy kingdom come, you know, my closest reference at that young age was Disneyland, you with me, right? Like, I distinctly remember praying those words and thinking of like amusement rides and churros. I was all in. Like, if this kingdom is anything like Splash Mountain, let's get on our knees. Oh, how the kingdoms have changed. What do we mean when we pray, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? In fact, let me just ask this apart from saying that prayer in worship, when was the last time you prayed like that? You know, even as adults, I feel like we, we say these words, right? But we've lost the significance of what we're asking God for. A kingdom come. At home, we have this doormat in our side yard, and it's got all these snowflakes. And written across this, this, this mat in big letters is the word joy in like these red and green colors. It's very clearly a Christmas floor mat. But ever since Thanksgiving of last year, I forgot it was there. I see it every day. I step onto it many times a day, but, 
But somehow it's, it's one of those things that's become so familiar, it's sort of just blended into the background. So a few weeks ago, we had some guests with us. And one of the kids asked me if we celebrated Christmas in July. And I was genuinely confused. I had no idea what he was talking about until I realized he was standing on the obvious. So I feel like the Lord's Prayer can be like that mat, right? We've, we've memorized it. We know it's there. For the most part, we, we probably said it a thousand times. Maybe you shelved it. But we've heard it so many times over that at some point it just sort of fades into the scene. So play this out with me. Let's go back to the obvious. You're with a brand new believer. They come with you to church for the first time and he asks you after worship, what's this kingdom stuff? I heard you pray thy kingdom come. That sounds kind of churchy. What do you mean by that? What would you tell him? You know, especially here in the U.S., I think just the concept of the monarchy is foreign, right? We, we are so far removed from this idea of kingdom that when we hear it, we think things like Renaissance festivals or King George and the revolution. So we get to those words, thy kingdom come, and it's a bit muddy. I mean, did you know, did you know that Jesus talked about this kingdom more than any other topic in all of scripture? Did you know that? The idea of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is paramount to who Christ is. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter three of Matthew's gospel. Otherwise, we'll have it up here on the screens. But let me just show you what I mean. John the Baptist is out in the wilderness, right? He's preparing the masses for this coming Messiah. And here's how he makes his public announcement. Look at that on the screens, verse one and two. Matthew says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and his sermon was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's an interesting statement. So just one chapter later, Jesus now comes on scene, and as he steps into the fray, it's really interesting, he says the exact same thing. From that time, Jesus began to preach what was the topic of his sermon, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, we know that this is going to be a story about a king and his kingdom come. See, when we pray for a, a kingdom, we should remember what it is that we're actually asking for. This is so significant, right, that Jesus rested his entire ministry on it. Matthew 5, just one chapter later, Jesus begins meeting with these people who are following him. He wants them to understand what it means to follow him. The Sermon on the Mount, first words out of his mouth, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, I think this morning it would be good for us to rethink just what it is that we mean when we're praying those words that Jesus taught us so long ago. I want to tell you the story of two cities to help us get our minds around that. Um, let's think Missoula and Bozeman. We all know the better city, right? But unlike our Montana townships, um, these two cities are different. Um, there's no city council or mayor. There is no sheriff. There's no democratic process or, or rule. There is no for the people, by the people. No, 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 in this story of, of these two cities, both towns are ruled entirely by a king. And not only is each town ruled by a king, but the people are in love with their king. 
St. Augustine coined this idea centuries ago, probably one of the greatest works in all of Christian thought, in my opinion. And here's why. He said, the first city that we speak of, we're gonna name that the city of God. And the second city we're gonna call the city of man. And each city bows to its own king. The first city is where God Almighty is worshiped, right? It's a city that is in love with the Lord, lives for the Lord in obedience to the Lord. The second is very different though. The second city is a place where man himself plays God, where self is king. See, the first seeks its eternal happiness and the, the promises of this, this holy God that seeks Christ in all things. The second city, though, seeks its happiness in the temporary things, the tangible things, the things of this world. And the one thing about these two cities is you can really only have one king. They, they coexist by God's mercy, but in the end, one city is headed for destruction, the other city for eternity. The people of these cities have a choice. You can either live for the city of man, whose king is self, who lives by its own pleasures and power, lust and greed, or you can live for the city whose king reigns eternal. A city defined by selfless living, loving your neighbor, pursuit of righteousness. You know, really, Missoula and Bozeman are probably actually the exact wrong images, so just delete that. Because when we pray for a kingdom come, we're not praying for a particular place, we're praying for a particular king. See, those two cities, when Jesus came, those two kingdoms now collided. You had the city of man where life was full of brokenness and destruction and death, and now here comes Christ on scene. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. The king in the flesh is before you. And with this kingdom come on scene, there is a call to action. Will I live for the city of man, or will I live for the city of God? Let me say that again. This is really important. When you pray, thy kingdom come, let me say this. We're not praying about a place. We're praying about a relationship. What we're asking for, right, is for God's sovereign rule to reign first in our lives and then in the lives of those around such that Jesus Christ is glorified in full consummation. Now, I'm getting a bit nerdy, so let's apply this. This week... As many of us read the headlines in our little town of a prostitution sting that includes school administrators and coaches on the front page, that's when we pray thy kingdom come. Or maybe you find your grown kids have left behind the faith that you hold so near and dear and they're now adults and there's nothing that you can do and you're struggling as you watch them struggle in despair. That's when you pray thy kingdom come find yourself wrestling in your own flesh and your own temptations and you find yourself looking in the mirror and you don't like what you see, that's the prayer. That's when the prayer comes alive, thy kingdom come. Alan Redpath, British pastor of Moody Church in the early 1900s, he said it like this. He said, if you're gonna pray for thy kingdom to come, what must follow is my kingdom go. If you're gonna pray thy kingdom come, what should be in your head simultaneously is my kingdom go. You know, I love that moment in Luke 17 when the Pharisees are trying to figure out this, this kingdom concept, right? 
Like they're the religious experts, but this, this Christ has come on and he continues to go on and on about this, this kingdom idea. And so they're fed up and they ask him, they say, when are you gonna put your money where your mouth is? When will this kingdom that you keep promising come to fruition? Enough of the vague talk. What's the date? You know why they asked him that? They were living for the wrong city. All these Pharisees could see, right, was not a savior from their own sin. They didn't believe they had the sin. They believed themselves to be above sin. They wanted a hero, a heroic king, to come and overthrow the Roman Empire. They wanted a king to come valiantly riding on a horse and destroy the occupation. But look at how Jesus responds. Look at this in verse 21 of Luke 17. He says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, oh look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. In other words, as you're asking that question, right, real time, do you realize the king is standing right in front of you? You know, it's kind of like that Christmas doormat, right? These Pharisees have gotten so focused on the wrong things, they're so caught up in their own ideas, the things of man, they can't see it. The king is standing in their midst. See, when we pray for thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, what we're really asking for, what we're yearning for is that our thoughts, our actions, and our entire way of life would fall now under the reign of God. I recently watched a National Geographic documentary on Air Force One. Anybody seen that? It's good stuff. It's old school, a bit dated. But in this film, the entire film is based on how the presidential staff live almost exclusively for POTUS, right? Wherever he goes, whatever he does, they're at his beck and call. So first you kind of see this scene with these pilots who uh, scrutinize every nut and bolt of the plane. They're, they're, they're monitoring all the flight paths and the weather patterns. And then they shift to the, the presidential chef who knows everything about the, the diet of this man from his favorite drink to food to those who he'll be hosting that day. And then they walk with the presidential assistant who ensures every single fingerprint is wiped clean off of doorknobs, mirrors, Every linen is folded to perfection. Now just think about that. Hundreds of people from police to cabin crew and they're all obsessed with one man. It's kind of an interesting picture. You know, when we pray thy kingdom come, we should ask, just what king are we living for? If that's how we do with the President of the United States, who only leads, or might say reigns, for four years, how much more should we live for the eternal king? You know, I think there's a stark contrast in the lifestyles of those who live for themselves versus those who live for their king. How did David say it? Look at this in Psalm 84. He said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in those tents of wickedness. Thy kingdom come. You get in the picture? You know, when we pray those words, those, those three simple words, we're, we're making an acknowledgement that God is king, that God is king and we are not, that there is a kingdom that already exists and the citizens of that kingdom are you and I. And that really as the citizens of that kingdom, all we want is more of it. 
that every breath, every waking hour of our day would not be about my wants and desires, but they would be about him. See, and here's the challenge with that, right? The problem with that way of life is that you and I are not accustomed to living for a sovereign king. Like, that's not what this country is built upon. We are the antithesis of that. September 5th, 1774, anybody remember the date? 56 delegates, 12 of the 13 colonies, they meet together in the First Continental Congress, and the entire purpose of them being there in that congressional hall was for bringing their grievances against who? The king, right? And ever since that moment, as divided as our nation is, the one rallying cry we can all get behind is the absolute disdain of the monarchy, right? The closest we can get to when we think of a crown is fairy tale. So how in the words, how in the world, in the words of the late R.C. Sproul, does a democratic free people even begin to wrap their minds around what it is to live for a king? See, we should start here, right? When the kingdom of heaven is at hand, there is this consistent message throughout God's word from John the Baptist to Jesus himself. And it is this calling, this, this begging for a response from the king for you and I to repent. It's another old school churchy word, but it means to turn from a life of self and instead to a selfless life for him. See, Jesus said, no, no, no. As king, you now seek first the kingdom of God. Because when the king rules, when, when Jesus brings his word, that's paramount. There is no argument or debate. Think about this. There is no pushback. You don't get a town hall where you get to have referendums on the motion. When God's edict goes forth, when the king speaks, the people follow. And it's not just that we ask God to establish his kingdom in us. I think it's also that we long for a day when the king returns and this kingdom that he speaks of will finally come to full realization. See, that's the picture of thy kingdom come. Isaiah 40 tells us there's a day coming when the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. Here's kind of what I imagine when I think of that phrase. You know, this week, I read an article of a 477-mile-long lightning flash. Can you imagine? 477 miles long. Just a few years ago, there was such a strong buildup of thunderclouds that this lightning strike started in Houston, Texas, and sprawled all the way to southeastern Mississippi. Scientists got super original. They were like, what should we call it? And I'm sure someone in the office was like, I know, we'll call it Mega Flash. That flash goes so fast in 10 seconds, 500 miles. Now keep that picture in your mind, right? When we talk about a kingdom, when we pray thy kingdom come, did you know that this same Jesus, this same king promised us a day when he would reign forever like that? Luke 17, just as lightning flashes across the sky from one side to the other, Jesus says, so the Son of Man will be in his day. There is a day coming when we're at the blink of an eye, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There will be no mistake in the entire universe as to who the King is. And so what we pray for when we pray, thy kingdom come, is that God in his mercy and in his patience might increase his reign in us. First in you and I, and then 
and those who have so desperately lost their way of the king. You know, today, I think as citizens of the kingdom, we, we see dimly, as Paul says, through a dark lit glass, but there is a day coming. Mark my words, where the king that we pray to will take every shadow and every stain of sin and every shred of evil and he will expose it and he will eradicate it here on earth just as it is in heaven. And one of the first things that Jesus says upon his resurrection, right? One of the first reminders he gives after his, his death and his coming back to life before he goes to the Father. Look at this in Acts 1. Look at what he says. It says, he presented himself alive to them after suffering many proofs, appearing during the 40 days. And what is he talking about? The kingdom of God. See, the kingdom, right, is the obsession of the Christian life. Because we follow a king who we know is coming again. And it was his obsession. Here's two ways that John Calvin tells us God's bring about, God's brings about his kingdom to fruition. Calvin says it's by the word of God that we shape our thoughts. And it's by the Holy Spirit that he reorients our lives. Let me say that again. This is so basic. When you pray thy kingdom come, some tools to, to help us with that. The, the way by which God ushers in his kingdom, it's first by the word of God that shapes our thoughts and it's then by the Holy Spirit that realigns our desires. So here's my thought for this week. What if that prayer, what if those three short words became a part of your every day? What if as you focused on the word of God and prayer with the help of the Holy Spirit, what if those words became so saturated that they became a new way of life for you. You leave the house in the morning, not my kingdom, but thy kingdom come. You enjoy the Sabbath, drop a line in the water, thy kingdom come. I know you're praying for fish anyway. You engage in the hard things at work that you'd rather avoid, not my way, but thy kingdom come. You think about your finances, your time, your priorities, thy kingdom come. You wrestle in mental or physical health, thy kingdom come. You consider the weight of your own sin. Did you know Jesus said you come to him poor in spirit, helpless without mercy? And in God's grace, we become citizens of thy kingdom come? See, this king, right? This king and his kingdom are unlike any kingdom on earth. Every other king and every other empire will temporarily exist until it fades away. The city of man is destined for destruction. Rome, mighty in power, now sits in ruins. Babylon, once feared by all, it's a history book. Dictators promising that the world would be theirs, they now lie in graves. So let me summarize. I've thrown a lot at you this morning. Let me close here. When we pray thy kingdom come, we acknowledge three things in those three words. First, we remember who the king is and who it is that we serve. Second, as we stop to consider the, the king's edict, we realize we need to realign our lives, not to this kingdom, but to his. And third, in prayer, we long for the day that Jesus is coming back and all the wrongs of this world made right as we live with him for eternity. And will you pray with me? Let's practice that now. Man, God, we, we long for that unshakable kingdom.
We know that you have adopted us as sons and daughters. You have named us citizens for those who come to you poor in spirit and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, um, God, I just pray for any person in this room who hasn't done that, Lord, that, that you would move, Holy Spirit, on the hearts of those who have been struggling in faith. God, that we would truly see not the, the, the temporary tangible trappings of this world, but we would see the king before us, that we would hear your words that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Lord, and that we would all collectively repent and to follow you. So God, this week, we stand before the king and we long to hear his words, Lord, and when you speak, when your edict goes forth and it, and it hits our ears and we hear it and we receive it and we internalize it, Lord, we pray you would make us a people who live by it. God, we confess all the ways where we live for my kingdom and God, we just lay ourselves at the foot of the cross and we declare you again humbly as king. God, you are almighty in power. You are perfect in righteousness. You are the definition of love. So Lord, would you make us a people who follow that king, who love without abandon for that king, who live for that king, and Lord, who die for that king, who one day will live eternally with that king. Lord, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, here as it is in heaven. And all God's people said, amen. amen.